Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik. This is episode 139 of the podcast. For those of you who have been listening since the beginning, hey, welcome back. And for those of you who are new, hi, you're going to have a great time. As I said, my name is Woodzik. My pronouns are they, them, and I am a theater artist, activist, and writer currently residing in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. So I was lucky enough to have American Theater Magazine reach out earlier this year and ask if I wanted to reboot the Theatrical Mustang podcast. And I felt there was no better time. I jumped on the chance. And so here we are. A little bit about the podcast. My goal is to bring to you interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers from across the country. And I can think of no better first guest for this reboot than the incredible Sarah Porkalob. I was lucky enough to chat with Sarah before she left Seattle. For the last few weeks, she has been in New York City. She has been participating in a workshop of the newest piece in her original Dragon Cycle titled Dragon Baby. And as I record this intro, Sarah is entering into the first day of rehearsal for the Broadway revival of 1776. This cast is so exciting. It is all femme, non-binary, and trans performers. Sarah plays Edward Rutledge. Fun fact about the independently produced podcasts that are distributed by American Theatre Magazine, both of the hosts are currently located in Wisconsin. So I am in the Northwoods, and Brian James Pollock, host of The Subtext, is located in Madison, Wisconsin. The subtext is all about playwrights, playwriting, and the things that are left unsaid. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 139 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast with guest Sarah Porkalob. Sarah Porkalob, welcome back to this new iteration of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. Hi, welcome. Hello. When we're recording this, is this your last day in Seattle for quite some time? This is my last day in Seattle until August. End of an era and a beginning of new theatrical awesomeness happening primarily on the East Coast. Cool. Well, so all the cool people that I know know who you are, but for some folks who might be new to learning about your prolific work as an actor and theater maker and activist. How do you introduce yourself to new folks? Yeah, I try try to be chill um, in the social setting. Um, But in the professional setting, my elevator pitch goes a little something like this. Hey, all my name is Sarah Porkalov. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a Pisces sun, Taurus moon, Capricorn rising. I'm a first generation Filipino, Chinese, Hawaiian American, growing up in the Pacific Northwest and repping the culture that is here. I'm a multi-hyphenate, AKA whatever I do, I do it very well. Uh, When it comes to theater, anything you can name theater related, I do it. I have also built a career specifically the last three years of translating my skills as a storyteller into cultural work, specifically here in Seattle, working at the local governance level, using my storytelling skills and creative strategies to implement and create and develop anti-racist pedagogy that is used in local Seattle governance, arts and culture programming, et cetera. 
I would also say that, uh, yeah, I'm a power builder, aka I power lift and I body build. That's relatively new to my life, but something I'm equally passionate about. I'm largely known for my body of work called The Dragon Cycle. The Dragon Cycle is a trilogy of matrilineal musical dramedies, one play for each generation of my Filipino-American family. Each play focused on a central female protagonist and her specific hero's journey. I'm known for number one of the cycle, Dragon Lady, which has really built my name here in Seattle. Dragon Mama is part two. Those first two plays are solo shows. And the last in the cycle is called Dragon Baby, which is my story a 12-person, two-act, genre-defying musical, which has been commissioned by ART, and will premiere on their stage in repertory with the other two plays sometime in the next couple of years. And I, I love chicken wings and cats. Should we, we should book you, on, should we book you on Hot Ones? How would you do on Hot Ones? I think that I would have a great time. Like, I would have a great time. I would, <laughs> I would die, but I would have a great right. time dying. Right. <laughs> So you've just gotten done with a run. It was a two-part run with Cafe Nordo of the first two plays in the cycle. Can you just reflect a little bit about what that run was like and what new audiences you drew in and perhaps what you did to draw them in? The Dragon Cycle started 10 years ago, my senior year at Cornish College of the Arts, in my solo performance class. I had signed up for the solo performance class because it was the scariest thing on the roster. And at that time, I was really confused and conflicted about what kind of storyteller I wanted to be. Having woken up to the fact that the last four years of my life, I had spent largely in a white supremacist educational institution where stories like mine, not just like mine, but also the communities that I come from were not elevated and empowered. They were often invisibilized and um, silenced. So my senior year, I was like, fuck, (laughs) am I really going to go out and make a career out of being in Miss Saigon for the rest of my life? I don't even really like Miss Saigon. What am I going to do? So I decided, well, why not make your own work, Sarah? And why not put yourself in a room with your skills, your story, try to mine those things and see what happens. And that's how Dragon Lady started. I didn't set out to create a trilogy back in 2012. But over the many years of development, I discovered that what I had inside of me was um, generational storytelling. And that generational storytelling led to my discovery as somebody who uses storytelling like to heal, to create healing and connection and community. So when it came to these last couple of productions at Cafe Nordo, my relationship with Cafe Nordo has been one of my most important creative collaborations in the last five years here in Seattle. They're an institution and a community that has supported every aspect of my work. They have produced my original plays, not just the Dragon Cycle plays, but my other bodies of work. They've supported me as a director and they've supported me as a friend. So it really felt like I was bringing my stories to a place with people that were in my corner as friends, not just as professional contacts. And what that meant for me is that I made the decision that I wanted this last production to feel like I was performing for family every night. Five years ago, I made the goal to diversify my audiences, not just across race, but across specifically age and geographical location. I wanted people outside of Seattle coming to my shows. I wanted families. I wanted kids. I wanted older folks. I wanted many generations in the audience. 
And every night, because Nordo was so intimate, I was able to chat with people and I saw that I had achieved my goals. Now, I can't really give you the like business plan that I used <laughs> other than any opportunity to talk about my work with a personal contact or a professional contact. I deliberately articulated my desire to have my community present. And that has proven to have worked. People have been showing up for me for these last productions um, in a really beautiful way. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about when you crowdfund? I love how thoughtful you are about accessibility and the different definitions of how that manifests itself. So can you talk a little bit about how you structure sort of redistributing the resources of folks who want to support you and maybe want to buy a ticket or buy an experience for someone for whom a ticket price may be prohibitive? Mm -hmm. So for these last productions at Nordo, I had a crowdfunding campaign with a goal of $10,000. Of that $10,000, $7,500 was allotted towards what we called a community ticket price, which was a ticket priced at half the cost of the original ticket price at Nordo. The full price ticket at Nordo for these productions was $50 and the community ticket price was $25. Now, in an ideal world, you'd be able to see my show for free. And I know, and as I have learned, and so many of us have learned these last two years in the pandemic, specifically if our medium is a live art medium, theater is not accessible. That's the truth. For people who are disabled, or even for folks who are larger bodied or fat folks sitting in a chair at the theater, getting to the theater, period, paying for the ticket price. There are so many barriers to seeing and experiencing live theater that exist um, that have become very real to those of us who are able-bodied in these last two years of the pandemic, having our art form taken from us. And that's really woken me up to, one, a lot of my privilege as an able-bodied person and a lot of the cracks and flaws that exist within my medium of choice, which is live art. So while at Nordo, I had made a proposition to them. I was like, I want to create a level of accessibility for my audience. And they were like, here's what we need in order to pay our staff a competitive wage. And we realized that, okay, we could do this if I was able to crowdfund $7,500. And we were able to do that. And the percentage of community tickets that we had for every performance sold out completely, which was fantastic. You know, and it's, it, it's got me thinking, while I'm, I'm proud of what we did there, I'm thinking about the future, Woodzik. I'm thinking about as I continue to grow my platform and become nationally known, how can I continue to make my work more accessible? And I'm excited to educate myself and collaborate with folks who care about the same things. Beautifully said. Speaking about collaborators and things coming up, <laughs> I would love to pivot to Dragon Baby. That's the piece arguably I know and the world knows the least about yeah. at this point in time. And I love the genesis of two solo shows and then breaking this world open and bringing in folks to tell the story with you. So do you want to talk about how this emerged in the cycle and what audiences have to look forward to when they're able to experience it for the first time. In many ways, Dragon Baby is the play that people expected me to write as soon as I graduated from college. 
I was an angry brown girl disillusioned with my largely white education and disillusioned with the reality of theater, not just as a brown person, but as a queer person, as somebody who lived in communities of trans folks and disabled folks. Like I was looking at a career that was not only unwelcoming of my community, but was actively silencing the people that I cared about. I was like, ah, this sucks. So in many ways, Dragon Baby is the play that encompasses that pivotal moment in my life. It starts my senior year with this big song called Broadway, Here We Come. It's me ruminating over the fact that I've spent the last four years doing this thing. Nobody looks like me. My senior thesis is to take a classic American, AKA classic white playwright, and to emulate their work in this like new way. And I'm like, I don't feel connected to any of these people. And what I discovered through the course of Dragon Baby is that the story that I'm trying so desperately to tell in order to graduate, to go to NYC and become a big Broadway star doing Miss Saigon for the rest of my life, that that story was never mine. And I had to stop working to make that story mine so I could save my energy to really investigate the stories that I had in me all along. In many ways, we like to call Dragon Baby a genre-defying musical because just as Sarah, the protagonist, is scrambling and chasing after the perfect form to tell her story, the actual form of the musical shifts with her. So I'll give you a little taste. The first 20 minutes of it are gonna feel like big Broadway musical. Everybody's gonna be like, oh my gosh, that's Sarah. I under totally understand her I want story. There's her family. We introduced to them in this beautiful family all skate song. <laughs> and then at the 21 minute mark, the entire thing changes and the audience is gonna be like, where are we? Some people might even be mad. <laughs> And then by the time we get to the 40 minute mark, you're like, what is going on? And then it's gonna transform into this huge like rock concert vibe with like lasers. And my family is certainly gonna be the backup band and I'm gonna be the front singer. And then act two starts and you're like, where are we? Is this a deconstructed classical witchy piece? What's going on? Why hasn't anybody been singing for the last 20 minutes? You, you'll see, those are just little little teasers of what Dragon Baby is. Um, oh, one last thing is that Dragon Baby ends with me sharing the first few lines of Dragon Lady. Oh, I just got chills. <laughs> it comes full circle. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, for folks who haven't seen Dragon Lady, that starting image of Dragon Lady, it lives in my heart. Like, theatrically, it's just it's there, you know, it, it res you reside within me. Thank your you. work does. You've been talking a little bit about people being mad or angry and in doing my homework for this podcast and, and listening to the last time that we spoke, we had a really interesting conversation about anger and mm -hmm. this industry and how that guides or motivates the work of some folks. Do you find that anger is still a powerful motivator in your work and where, where you go creatively? I would say yes, but the last two, three years, it has taken a backseat to love and celebration and joy, which I'm, I'm very pleased because creating work out of anger for me, I realized wasn't sustainable. 
it was mm. necessary. It was very necessary in my journey right. of learning, but uh, it wasn't very sustainable. And I feel like I'm I'm living in a place creatively that is feeling really embraced by my community. Whereas from 2012 to 15, I felt completely isolated. Mm. So I, I think that's a beautiful journey. I have no regrets for the artist that I was, the things that I said, the things that I wrote from 2012 to 2017. Those five years were formative for me because I wanted them to be. I didn't want to sit and wait for people to give me the opportunities that I hungered for. I didn't want to sit and watch people like me and other people that I cared about be silenced. I didn't want to sit in a theater and be okay with the racist, sexist, transphobic work that I was seeing on stage. When you're not okay with stuff, yeah, you get angry. And for me, that sparked me to action and moving through many developments of myself as a person, period. Not just me as an artist, but me as a person over the years. Like we all do, we're always growing, it's cyclical. I, I found my place, I found myself in a place that feels largely bodied by a different kind of emotion. And I'm thankful for that. I'm so glad that you said that. It is a powerful, anger can be transformational, but I think love has the power to transform more quickly and more radically. I love, I love art that comes from a place of love and compassion. One of the things that I respect the most about you is how deliberate you are in choosing collaborators. Hmm. Can you talk a bit about what attributes you look for to align yourself with collaborators? I would say the top five things that I look for in a collaborator are humility, confidence. They like to laugh, AKA they got jokes. Don't mind being teased. They don't mind teasing. They love to eat and honesty. Those are the big things. The first two, humility and confidence, I think sometimes confuse people, especially when I talk about myself. If I'm meeting people for the first time, they're, they're more often than not surprised that I'm so confident, which I always think is so funny. And then, you know, half hour later, and if it's an interview or another podcast, they're like, wow, you seem so humble. And I just want to point out the fact that like humility and confidence are not opposite ends of a spectrum. So when I say that I'm looking for humility in a collaborator, what I mean is this, I want to work with somebody who understands that they don't know everything. And they're actually not afraid of that. They're not afraid of not knowing everything. They're okay with that. If anything, they're excited to learn from me, from our relationship, from the world at large. Now, when I say confidence, what I want in a collaborator is somebody who is confident about what they do know and what they do believe in, what they like and what they don't like. And I can see confidence, that kind of confidence in five-year-olds. Doesn't have to be somebody in their like early mid-career like me or like a 60-year-old who has all of these awards under their belt. You know, that person might not even be confident. That's what I look for in collaborators is this mix of, I know what I know and I know it well, and I know what I believe. I know what I like and I know what I don't know. And that's okay. This is awesome. Um, people who like to laugh, <laughs> that's one thing that I, I come from a family that loves to laugh and I love to laugh. And it's so funny because sometimes when people don't know me, my reputation precedes me before I walk into a room. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's Sarah Boigla. She stated she was a feminist in 2012 and she's so intense. <laughs> and then I like, I like come in and I'm cracking jokes and I'm I like, you know, I'm, I'm like, whatever. And they're like, wow, it's so confusing that she's so down to earth. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I think it's funny. We are not just one thing. 
right? We are the right. culmination of our experience and, and that changes day to day. Therefore we change day to day. And I really love people who can laugh at themselves, who can laugh at anything. As an only child, I laugh at a lot of stuff because I kind of had to when I was younger just to keep myself <laughs> entertained. I love people who love to eat. I love food. I'm always bringing snacks. If you're in any rehearsal process of mine, well, this is also pre-COVID, mind that. Um, always bring in snacks. Food brings people together because we all got to eat. And that's the truth. And I like people who are honest. Honesty hurts sometimes if you're told something that you don't want to hear or something that hurts your feelings. But I, I come from a family, especially my parents, where they taught me honesty above all things, honesty and integrity. And I don't want to be lied to. And I don't want to lie to people. And I will do whatever work that needs to be done in order to be in a place where I can receive the truth for my peers, my family, and my community so that I can better give and share the truth with them. I want to, I want to put a frame around each one of your answers. Oh no, no, you're just, I mean, speaking of honesty, you're so, you're so articulate. I love it. I love how you talk about food. I also love on Instagram, one of my favorite Instagram stories of yours was when you went into a local donut place and they had seen they had seen your your piece on the local news. What are some of the favorite spots for food that you're gonna miss in Seattle? Oh my god. Okay, so I'm gonna name quite a few places for those of you on the East Coast. If you ever come over here on the West Coast, you gotta go. Okay, so my favorite fried chicken wings, which is in my top three favorite foods, are at Fooli Market on Beacon Hill, which is an Asian market that has a hot food counter with, uh, so many, uh, I don't even want to talk about it. They're so delicious. <laughs> my second favorite chicken wings in this city are at Tai Tung in the International District, one of the oldest Chinese restaurants here in Seattle. One of my friend spots, which just got like totally recognized by the New York Times and has been nominated by the James Beard Award is Archipelago, which is the restaurant of Aaron Versosa and Amber. They're this duo that has this beautiful team. They're pairing storytelling with the foods of their Filipino American culture, but also bodied by and elevating local food, local farmers, etc. I will also say Chinese hot pot, my favorite place to go here in the ID, I think it's called Little Fat Lamb, Little Fat Sheep. Anyway, it's across the street from Wajimaya. It's delicious. Get the all you can eat. You won't regret it. I will also say I love Le Panier for bakery things mm. and macarons and all the gluten and butter, which is in the Pike Place. I love Little Woody's Burgers. One of their locations that I always go to is in White Center. Oh my gosh. Los Petrios, which has the best lengua and tripas tacos. That's in White Center. I could go on and on. It's like, I'm just going to stop. I love it. No, I, I love people who are joyous and passionate and willing to say good things about food it's food. it never gets old it never gets old for me yeah before we dive into your upcoming broadway debut mm -hmm. which i'm super excited to talk about i want to talk about bodybuilding first there's something really epic about deliberately and literally taking up more space yeah and also, I love conversations that talk about diversity of bodies on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I started 
resistance training in December of 2020, working specifically with a trainer who programmed for me a training style that was a combination of bodybuilding and powerlifting. Now, for those of you who are listening who are like, what is this? Bodybuilding (laughs) is literally the sport of shaping the muscles of your body specifically for aesthetic reasons. Now, powerlifting is the physical sport of lifting as much weight as you can. (laughs) And when I started this, I was like, yeah, I want to lift heavy things. And then I was like, yeah. And I think I'd also like to have a fat ass and big shoulders. Cool. So my trainer was like, great, we'll do a combination of bodybuilding and powerlifting. And I took to it immediately. I had done some weightlifting early in college. I think also just being an actor, my awareness of my body and how it moves and also being a solo performer. Like you can watch me on stage, play 30 characters with no costume changes and know exactly who you're watching at what time. Right. So I have this skill of physical awareness, how my body moves and telling it to do things that really came in handy when it came to bodybuilding and powerlifting. And I soon realized that not only am I just good at this, I am also very strong. Mm. Uh, Yeah. For anybody who bodybuilds or powerlifts, you know that much of your progress or success um, when it comes to training is half training and half nutrition. You got to eat enough in order to lift what you want to lift. You got to eat certain things in order to build your muscles the way you want to build them. And as my listeners already know, y'all know I love to eat. So food wasn't really an issue. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to eat these chicken wings tonight. And I'm going to go deadlift 225 pounds tomorrow. (laughs) I also think I really loved it because I was only doing it for me. It was like the thing for me and making art, making stories. That stuff is hard, (laughs) especially when you're in collaborative spaces. You know, you're, you're having to consider the needs, the diverse needs of the diverse room. And as somebody who finds myself in positions of power, I often found myself responsible for those needs and for those people. And that's a lot. You know, you have to hold space for them, for you. It changes moment to moment. And I love that. And I feel like that has taught me so much. So being in the gym where it's just me and the weights, it actually felt very simple. I was like, I have to lift that and put it back down again. And then I have to come back tomorrow and do the same thing. And then next week, I got to try to lift more than what I did. And I just have to be sure to eat and rest along the way. I was like, wow, this is so formulaic. (laughs) (laughs) Storytelling for me is not. In many ways, it felt, uh, it still feels meditative when I go to the gym. I'm just Mm -hmm. there doing my thing. And I love it. I I love lifting heavy stuff. I mean, to be honest, I'm going to be at the roundabout in September. And I want to, actually, I don't really know what my costume looks like, to be honest. But I want to be buff enough so that... My friends up in the farthest away seats can see my quad sweep. They can see my rounded delts in the event that I take off my colonial jacket and my arms are bare. Those are the aesthetic goals that I have. (laughs) And it is something that I can do for the rest of my life. Um, And I'm going to, because I love it so much. Heck yes. Speaking about the roundabout and colonial gear, (laughs) let's talk 1776. Yeah. How did you come to this project? I cannot state how excited I am for this show. I love the music of 1776. I have a couple friends who are in the show. 
It's bringing folks of all different experiences together. And there are no white dudes. I am so excited. Tell me more. So my relationship with American Repertory Theater, which is um, one of the producing partners, right? This run at Roundabout is preceded by an opening run at American Repertory Theater in Boston. And then following the Roundabout run is the national tour of 1776. So it was really my relationship with ART that snagged me this opportunity. I was performing Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama in Repertory in 2019. Diane Paulus, one of the directors of 1776 and the current artistic director of ART came to my performance of Dragon Lady and at intermission, she walked up to the producers and she was like, where did you find this woman? And they were like, we've been trying to get you to see her. You know, you were doing Waitress in London when she was here last year. And she was like, I can't, she's so good. And then at the end of the show, she introduced herself, said, thank you so much for being here. And then the next day I get an email from her assistant asking me to meet with Diane. And I sit down with Diane and Diane goes, I just want to say that having your plays here at our theater has been one of the proudest moments in my career. She was like, your storytelling, your ability as a performer, as a playwright um, was incredible and breathtaking. I'm directing the revival of 1776 and I need you in the show. And I was like, I've heard of that show. Isn't that like the Boomers Hamilton? Well, I didn't say that out loud, but I said it in my head. I was like, isn't that like the Boomers Hamilton? Doesn't it only have like eight songs? And she slid me the script and she was like, here's my concept. I am planning on having all femme, trans, non-binary cast. This is our attempt to reclaim this part of our history, but to also reinvestigate it and hold it up for our Broadway audiences. Let me know what you think. Tell me who you're interested in playing because you can play anyone. And I nodded to myself, even though I was like ecstatic and jubilant on the inside, because isn't this what every actor wants to be offered a role without having to audition? But I was like, Sarah, you're getting this opportunity because this woman just watched you perform your story, your family's story. This is so cool. So I went home, I read the script. I was like, yeah, this is the Boomers Hamilton. I recognize (laughs) this. I listened to the music and I was like, there really isn't that much music. And then I read that long scene that's like 30 minutes where everybody's arguing. And I was like, this text is dense. I like this. (laughs) And then I got really excited with the fact that this was going to be cast with like femme, non-binary trans folks. And I went to her and I was like, I'm in. And she was like, who do you want to play? And I was like, not John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to play any of the, the, the two women <clears throat> that there are. To be honest, I'd love to play Edward Rutledge. And she was like, that's what I was thinking. So that's how I got the gig. Of course, I had to send in an audition video, me singing the song so she could share it with her uh, co-director, Jeffrey Page. They're empty. So they all, they had never met me. They had to know that I could sing the role and do the text and they wanted to see my portrayal of it. But that's ultimately how I, how I came to the show. Uh, Diane Paulus offered me a role before they had even had auditions because she saw me in Dragon Lady. That story makes my heart happy. Yeah. I want to dig into this, the character of Rutledge. I remember in eighth grade, we watched it in my social studies class. And we had this exercise where we were assigned one character to follow and journal as that character. Mm -hmm. And I was assigned Rutledge. He's an 
interesting dude, man. The song that he sings, Molasses to Rum, mm. is absolutely haunting to me. And I think, to me, it's sort of, does it have a resonance to you towards, I mean, I feel like there's parallels to like today's modern political scene and, and some folks who are very conservative, but very charming and very affable. And I think part of the reason that makes him such a complex character is that he's not just evil. Where do you start building this character, um, especially keeping in mind your positionality and your autoethnography as a performer? How do you start building that? Yeah, you know, I would say I start from my own opinion of him and what I know from the script. He, I believe, was the youngest signee of the Declaration of Independence. I think he was 23 at the time. Um, he's described in the script as being the like most fancily dressed. <laughs> we know that he has enslaved people, he has land, he has property. Now being 23. Uh, it's very different <laughs> than what it was like to be 23 back then, right? Right. So I think, okay, he's a man of responsibility and of property. And that much is clear in how his text is presented in the play. He has a sense of confidence, business acumen, right? And the song that he sings is what I've heard a lot of people call the 11th hour song. Right. Because at this point, there is dissension in the room. And what Edward Rutledge wants is he wants a specific passage from the independent stricken. This passage specifically condemns black slavery. And he literally says, black slavery is our peculiar institution and our cherished way of life in the South. And that line right there tells me so much. As haunting as molasses to rum is, he is a man he who has dehumanized Black people, has reduced them to property, has reduced them to chattel. And it is enough for him in this room to walk out if that passage isn't stricken from this formative document in our history. And that makes me think about the very ending of the play, Woodsick, where that Liberty Bell is tolling. To me, it's a bell of doom. It's the bell that is cementing our white supremacist culture in these cultural, legal, formative, historical documents that we literally built a country on the genocide of indigenous people, on the enslavement of black African people. And one man, at least in this play says, we will not recognize them. I will not sign this if we recognize them as human. And to me, that's not complicated. You know, I'm not super interested in my research as an actor in finding empathy for this man. Right. Why? <laughs> why? Why would I do that? You know, I know so many people like him. Right. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I do know a lot of folks like that. And we haven't gotten away from that legacy of folks like that. And the way in which they move through the world. Yes. I'm really glad that you get to breathe life into that role. Thank you. Gosh, I just, I hope they release video of you singing that song. Cause I just, 
I'm so excited for that pairing of, of artist and role within, within that larger universe of femme and non-binary and trans performers. I love that in a world where we have theatrically the legacy or the, the estate of some folks being like, oh no, you can't cast it like that. You can't change it. I love that Sherman Alexander's son, Keith, has gone on record as saying, yeah, like this show wouldn't get produced if you only had two dozen men every single time that you do it. And so change the scores, mix it up. And it's also more indicative of where government has gone to bring in other voices other than a bunch of white dudes. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that part. I said that part, but Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think too, I'm excited to play the role because I'm not interested in transforming into Rutledge. No, I'm actually really excited as Sarah Porkalob, my body, my voice, my experience to be right up against the shell of a character. That the tension between the two of us is what I'm excited to bring to the stage, to share with our audiences, to bring to life, to have people walking out and then being like, oh my God, that's Sarah Burglar. That was really great. And then to have them be like, wait a minute, that was literally a song dehumanizing enslaved Black people. Why do I feel this way? What a minute, you know, like that kind of tension, that dissonance, right? That's what we are trying to bring to the forefront of this. And it's going to be exciting to see how we rise to that challenge. That's what happens when you put on a historical piece. A historical piece comes with baggage. But I think that as it continues to move forward, this thing that was produced so many years ago, it becomes uh, frail. It becomes fragile. And I think a lot of people who don't want to change that is because they're afraid. They're afraid of what could be broken. I'm not afraid of that. And I don't think my cast is. And I don't think our team is either. So I'm ready. Let's break some shit. Pow, pow. Let's break that egg. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. Pivoting away from 1776, I would love you to amplify some of the, some of the folks in the industry mm-hmm. right now whose work shines bright for you right now, whatever that means. Like, who, who are you looking to in terms of work that you're excited about coming up? Well, I can't be from Seattle and not rep what's happening and who's in Seattle. That's the truth. I'm one of those musical theater performers where if you were to be like, what's happening on Broadway? I'd be like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you were like, what are your favorite musicals that I debuted in the last 10 years? I'd be like, ah, right. It's so funny. I just remember growing up like in high school and college and, and being in musical theater and having people talk about all these things and singing all these songs. And I would just be like, no, I don't want to inundate myself with what's happening in a city that is away from me because I'm trying to figure out what I have to offer right here. I'm not trying to emulate what's happening in New York right now. And I still feel that way (laughs) 10 years later. So I'm going to rep the people from my own city. I am specifically excited about Justin Huertes, who is a Filipino American playwright, composer, lyricist, who is making his name writing sci-fi fantasy stories that center BIPOC heroes. He's known for his musical Lizard Boy, which is about to explode overseas. He's working with the Kennedy Center on this incredible musical. He, myself, and Kirsten Delore Helen are working on this sci-fi musical that deals with the mythology of the stars and what it means when we say that anyone can be the hero of their own story called The Lamplighter with support from the Fifth Avenue. 
I'm also really excited about Meme Garcia, who's a Salvadoran American trans playwright, performer, actors with a special, special skill set in classical text. They will be at OSF this year. Their play um, House of Sueños is also receiving a workshop. Can't say from what theater yet, but that's going to be happening on the East Coast. Um, I'm excited for their work, which specifically elevates like Latinx, Latine identity, as well as like trans queer identity to the forefront in their stories that specifically celebrates not just their skills of resilience, but their futures of like joy and, and happiness and celebration. Also somebody who has just been killing it here in Seattle. I cannot wait for her just to watch her grow <laughs> into herself is, is Jay Woods, um, who's Afro-Latina artist, director, who has just been named the artistic, oh wait, Associate Artistic Director of Artist Engagement at the Fifth Avenue. I met Jay in 2016. I remember sitting down to coffee with her and I was like, so, what, so what's your plan? She was like, I'm gonna run a huge theater. I'm gonna run theaters. And sure enough, she's doing that. She just directed their production of Beauty and the Beast, which had at its center a Black American bell and a Black beast. I, just incredible. It had a very short run just because of COVID things, but it was one of the most powerful productions I know that our community has seen in a long time. So yeah, those are some of the people from the PNW that I am especially excited about. Yay. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. As we sort of the, the beginning of the end of the podcast, uh, what's a question that you wish you were asked in interviews? And let's ask it right now. Gosh, we talked about bodybuilding, powerlifting, food, which are like high up there with theater. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, my favorites, not, it's just snack related. I don't know. Wait, ask whatever you want to ask. I'm kind of stumped right now. Okay. I love this. So you're curating the perfect snack basket for a day of outdoor theater. What's in that basket? Oh, you already know. Okay. Fried chicken wings, <laughs> white rice. Uh, pickled something, whether that's kimchi or like pickled cucumbers, whatever, pickles, period. A bag of Tim's jalapeno chips. A bag of radishes. I like to have eat one radish in one hand with Tim's jalapeno chip in the other because the radish acts as a palate cleanser. Plus it's like my one of my favorite other food groups, which I just call crispy water. In that crispy water category are celery, carrot, basically vegetables. I just go like this, she goes crunch, crunch. It's perfect bubbly water even though I know it's bad for your teeth. Tell my dentist. Some kind of sweet ice cream. Mm -hmm. Ice cream. And I really love macarons. Mm. They're just delicious. And I could fit five of them in my mouth at once. Yeah, that's my basket. I love that basket. Follow-up question. Have you ever had radishes and uh, dip them in butter with a little salt as an appetizer? Oh my God. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Just like pro tip for anyone who's never done that. Do you it. Do it. You won't crunchy it. water. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, where, where do folks keep up with you? If they want to, if they want to learn about all that's wonderful in the world of Sarah Porklob, where should they follow you? I would say Instagram at sporkalob, aka sporkalob. 
you can follow me on Facebook, but I'm just trying to phase out Facebook in my life. I also think there's a limit to how many friends you can have on Facebook on a personal page. And I'm just like, that's dumb. I want to have so many friends. You can't limit me, Facebook. So Facebook's like second choice. I have a website. I haven't updated it in a while, to be honest. So you can go look at it if you're interested in anything that I've done in the past. And I'm trying to be a better user of Twitter, but all I ever really do on Twitter these days is shit talk. So I'd say Instagram is where you'd want to go. A plus Instagram account. You will not be sorry, folks. So get on it. Sarah, thank you so much for taking this time and talking about food and theater and bodybuilding and all of the things. You're one of my favorite humans. And like I said, your work lives within my heart. So uh, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Woodzik. Oh, and one last thing for any of my listeners out there. I should have said this when we were talking about bodybuilding and powerlifting. You are stronger than you think you are. And for anybody who is interested in going to the gym and taking up space, it is intimidating, especially when you're surrounded by people who are not very considerate, right, of sharing space. And I also understand that we all have our own unique relationship with our bodies, right, and taking up space. But just like in the theater where you deserve to be there, you deserve to be in a gym. You deserve to be lifting those weights and um, treat your body well. Everybody is a good body. Fuel it, feed yourself, get some rest. Maybe one of these days I'll get certified as a trainer so I can work with folks to get them in the gym lifting heavy stuff because we can. Be strong, y'all. Okay, that's all I want to (laughs) say. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This podcast is co-produced and engineered by Ray Catherine Morgan and distributed by American Theater Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers. 